And so we continue in our study today in the fifth chapter of the Gospel of John. Now, I want to show you a little bit of the context of John's Gospel uh, so you have an idea of where we're going and kind of where we've come from. So, Jen, if you could swipe, I've actually got, oh, you're already there. That's awesome. So this is kind of a visual representation of the Gospel of John. And so kind of how it's organized and broken down. It's a little overwhelming just looking at that image. Um, but so if you kind of break it into pieces, you can figure it out. And you don't even have to worry. Oh, you can go back. You can go back. There we go. So you don't even have to worry about the second half of the screen right now. So we're really, the, the Gospel of John is kind of divided into two big chunks. Chapters 1 through 12, often called the Book of Signs. These, these are the chapters where John is giving us these seven signs that Jesus performs uh, to uh, identify himself as the Savior, uh, as the Messiah. And then chapters 13 through 21 are often called the Book of Glory. And it's really all about his journey to the cross and, uh, and his passion and resurrection. Uh, and so we've been obviously, in, we're in the, the first half of that. Last, the last several weeks, if you look toward the top left, you see 2 through 10, it says miraculous signs and controversies. This is the section that we're in. But then under that, there's, there's four panels. that says a wedding at the temple, a rabbi, and a sacred well. So we saw between chapters 2 and 4, we saw Jesus interacting with four kind of important aspects of Jewish life and religion, uh, institutions, if you will, of the, the Jewish faith. And so we saw Jesus turn water into wine, and we saw him... Um, cleanse the temple and to make the prediction about him, his death and resurrection and him becoming the new temple. Uh, we saw his conversation with uh, the rabbi Nicodemus about the need to be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God. And then we saw, we spent a couple of weeks in the, his conversation with the, the woman of Samaria at this sacred well, Jacob's well. Uh, and so, and he, again, seeing himself and presenting himself as the, the living water that would replace of the water from, from this well. So that's where we had been. And so today, we really enter a new section. You can go ahead and go to the next picture. And so the next section uh, is chapters 5 through 10. And we're gonna, it's again broken into four sort of categories. These are a little bit longer and a little bit um, more, the lines are a little blurrier, but the, the, the distinctions are there. So the first, uh, so these are, he's going to interact now with four Jewish feasts. The first feast is associated with Sabbath. So that's where we're going to look today. Um, and then in chapter 6, he's going to interact with the Passover feast. Chapter 7 through the first part of 10 deals with the Feast of Tabernacles. And then the latter part of chapter 10 deals with, uh, with Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights. And so that's over these next several chapters, between chapters 5 and 10. It's, he's going to be John, again, intentionally, systematically, theologically, is presenting Jesus over and against the various institutions and feasts and shadows, if you will, of the, the Jewish life and religion. And he's making the argument that Jesus fulfills all of that and surpasses it. So all of the things that the people of God, the Jews, up until that time and under the Old Covenant had clung to and believed in and 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 prophesied and looked forward to the promises being fulfilled, all of those promises are being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. That is the argument that John is 
laying out. And so remember that that is the purpose of John's gospel. He tells us at the end of the gospel in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, I have written these things, that is these signs, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So he wants to convince you of who Jesus is, and then he wants you to put your confidence, put your trust into this Jesus so that you might have life. And so that's where uh, we, we're going, and so, that, so the, our journey through John brings us to the beginning of chapter 5 today. So there are, in these first uh, 12 chapters, as I mentioned, there are seven signs that John tells us. There are more that he did. He's already told us that while he was in Jerusalem that first time, he did signs that, you know, that others saw. Um, and then he tells us at the end of the gospel, if every sign were written about, they could fill every book ever written, you know, that kind of a thing. And so uh, clearly there's more that Jesus did than what John shows us. But John shows us seven miracles, seven signs that point to the identity of Jesus. We have seen so far Jesus turning water to wine at the wedding in Cana in chapter 2, and we have seen last week Jesus' healing of the son of a court official uh, in, at the end of John chapter 4. And today we come to number 3, sign number 3. So let's turn to the fifth chapter and begin there. And we'll just kind of walk through this together rather than reading the whole text and then talking about it. We'll walk through it uh, kind of piece by piece. So verse one tells us, after this, that is after his healing of the official's son in chapter four, after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now we don't know the particular feast being observed here. It doesn't, John does not tell us that, but the main Jewish observance that's featured in this passage is the Sabbath. We'll talk a little bit more about the Sabbath and its meaning uh, in a little bit. Uh, and so the Sabbath is going to, to feature prominently in, in this story, though he's going to Jerusalem for uh, some particular religious feast, uh, some religious observance, which reminds us of Jesus' commitment to fulfill the Jewish law and thus obey it on our behalf. Because God set up this law, he set up these, this system, you do these things, you pray in these ways, you make these sacrifices, you go through these kind of routines and festivals, the reminders of God's faithfulness and all that, and uh, that is a, a part of their kind of keeping the covenant with God, between God and Israel. And part of what Jesus had to do was live out God's law perfectly so that it could be set aside because no human being to that point had lived God's law perfectly. Not a single one of them. They had all failed at at least certain points and probably at most points, right? Because that's what people do. We fail. We mess up. We can't live it out. We can't keep the standard. And so Jesus, if all Jesus had to do was die, then really the first 33 years of his human life on earth were totally useless. Like why spend 33 years? Why not just come to earth as a baby and then be killed? Like why couldn't Herod have killed him as a baby, right? Because Herod tried to kill him and they fled. If all he had to do was die, then they could have let Herod kill him and then it would have been over, right? Redemption accomplished. But that's not what it needed to do. He had to live out God's law and perfectly obey it. So we talk about Jesus dying in our place, which he did. But before he died in our place, he lived in our place. 
He obeyed in our place. And so we're reminded by seeing Jesus going to Jerusalem for this feast observance, we're reminded of Jesus' commitment to live out God's law so that he could set it aside for us, so that we could have his obedience applied to our account by faith when we trust in him. So he takes this pilgrimage to Jerusalem, uh, which Jewish males were expected to take. So verse 2 tells us, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Now there's a lot uh, in there, a lot of details there, things that sound very foreign to us that would be easy to get lost in. Let me try to walk through them very quickly. The sheep gate um, is, um, uh, is the gate where people would, would bring their sheep through into the city of Jerusalem to sacrifice them at the temple because that was a part of the Jewish system and the covenant keeping on, of the part, the part of the people of Israel was making sacrifices for sins to God. And so, but they, there was a certain gate that the sheep were supposed to enter through um, so that I guess it didn't get all mixed up and confused with all the people coming and going in the main gates of the city. So there was a sheep gate. And some actually believe that this pool that comes into the story is where people would wash the sheep before they would take them through the sheep gate and sacrifice them. So it could be that that was the, the purpose of this pool. But the sheep gate is just where sheep entered Jerusalem uh, in order to be sacrificed. Um. So we have this explanation about this pool, that it has five roofed colonnades. And um, all I'll say about that is that uh, there have been archaeological digs and excavations that have located a, a series of pools and these five porches that, that correspond perfectly with this description that we get from John. And, so, and that has happened throughout uh, time as long as there's been archaeological, uh, you know, excavations and explorations and things going on, um, every discovery simply confirms what we find in God's word. It's it's reliable. It's trustworthy. It's historically valid. And so this is another one of those those times where we have this description, almost an unnecessarily detailed description, of a pool with these five porches and and these kind of corresponding uh, uh, bodies of water connected to each other. Um, but they have found that very pool and these five porches corresponding to it. And so, again, just lends credibility and, and strengthens our, our confidence in the testimony of God's word. Uh, and so verse 3 tells us, in these, that is in these porches, right? So there's these pools connected and these five porches. And in these porches lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So that's kind of a uh, progression, if you will, of, of seriousness uh, of, of afflictions and disabilities. So blindness and then lame, the word there really just kind of means can be, it's very broad. It could be physical deformities. It could be some part of the body not functioning properly. Um, and then paralyzed would be more or less well, you know what paralyzed is. I mean, so things don't work and they're not mobile. We really can't, can't even get around. And so there's multitudes of people. We don't know how many, dozens, hundreds, I don't know. But across these five porches, around these pools, these invalids, these people with disabilities would just lay and hang out 
because there's nothing else that they could do. They were beggars. Um, because in that culture and society, even more so than in our day and time, um, if you had disabilities like this, there was just the, the culture just could not accommodate you and didn't at all or make any efforts. And so they would just, oh, that, oh, you're disabled? That's where you go. You lay over there by that pool and hope that somebody might have mercy on you and feed you today. And that's how they lived. And was, this is a desperate place. These are beggars. These are outcasts. These are people, multitudes of people, that are forgotten by the world and just cast aside. And it should not be a surprise to us by now that Jesus is drawn there. Jesus' heart is full of love and compassion. And Jesus, so often called the great physician, is ready to extend his arms of mercy toward a broken, undeserving sinner in desperate need. Okay, let's read verse 4. Oh, wait, you can't. It's not there. If you notice, it goes from verse 3 to verse 5, depending on your translation. You might have a translation that has it there with a note. In the ESV, it skips it altogether, but there's a, a, a footnote. And if you go look in the footnote, there's, it says like some manuscripts have this verse. And verse 4 says, waiting for the moving of the water. Okay, so it says that at the end of, in verse 3 it says, there lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And then there is a verse 4 that says, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. And then verse 5 begins, one man was there, and then the story continues. So it raises an obvious question. Why is that verse in a footnote or not there at all? Why does the ESV skip from verse 3 to 5? And I don't think it's of uh, enormous importance, but I don't want it to be a stumbling block for you. I don't want you to get uh, confused by it and start to go, oh no, my Bible is messed up or they're tricking me or whatever. So we do have to, I want to talk just a little bit about this. So we have an enormous wealth of resources in manuscript evidence, manuscript witness of the, of the scriptures. 5,000 plus manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts containing all or portions of books of the Bible. Um, and so the way that, that there's a whole a scholarly academic discipline called text criticism, there's a whole discipline devoted to the studying of these manuscripts and the comparing of these manuscripts and dating of manuscripts to try to compare and, and get back as close to we, as we can to a, a pure and accurate uh, text. So, so what we could say, this seems to be the original version, if you will, of the Gospel of John, because it is important to know we don't have any of the originals. Like, we don't have a piece of paper that John himself actually wrote on. That doesn't, doesn't exist. We haven't found it, all right? No one has found it. Uh, and so what we have are early copies where people have, uh, where scribes were charged with the job of copying down the writings of the apostles and the prophets and then delivering them to various colonies and, and communities where people would then read them and then they'd make copies and they'd make copies. And then, uh, and so you have over centuries, thousands and thousands of these kind of these copies and these manuscripts. So generally speaking, there's, there are a few manuscripts that are very early dated to the first century. 
And those are regarded as the most accurate, the most reliable, because obviously they were written, copied closer to the time of their actual composition. And so you figure that's going to be the purer, if you will, uh, rendition of the text. And so the earliest and best and most reliable manuscripts for the Gospel of John don't have verse 4. And in later copies of, of the Gospel of John, it starts to appear. So I'm thinking what probably happened is that it wasn't there. Probably is not original to John's Gospel. John probably didn't write verse 4 about the angel coming and stirring the water and all that. But verse 7 kind of begs an ex- for an explanation. Look at verse, let's skip down to verse 7. It says, The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. If you don't have the explanation of verse 4, that is weird, right? You kind of go, what does that mean? Stirring water, and why does this lame guy have to get to a pool? It doesn't really make sense. So what probably happened is that a scribe, in copying the Gospel of John, decided that probably needs some explanation. And maybe in a margin, kind of wrote out verse 4, as like just kind of explaining, here's what people believed happened. And then over time, it kind of made its way into the text. Um, that, that, that might, that's kind of a guess, but I think that might be what happened. So verse 4 is probably not original to John's gospel. But nevertheless, it likely is an accurate explanation of uh, what the people thought happened. Uh, it, it, it is probably an explanation of the scenario implied by the man's statement in verse 7 about the stirring of the waters. And so if that blows your mind and is more than you can think about, then don't think about it. It's, it's not a big deal. There are variations and things like that uh, throughout the, the manuscripts uh, of the New Testament. Um, but they're, so, they're like this. This does not affect any essential doctrine of the Christian faith. It doesn't even change the story. I mean, it helps us maybe better understand the story if it were there, but it doesn't change what happens. And so all of the variants and the the things that disagree between manuscripts, early manuscripts and later manuscripts, are all along those lines. They're, They're either misspellings or omitted words or explanations like that that seem to have been added later um, but it doesn't change any of the foundations of the Christian faith. So it's not, it's not something that we need to panic about. And go, oh, no, we can't trust the Bible anymore. Uh, but I wanted to bring that up just because you might go, where's verse 4? And kind of stumble over that. So that's hopefully a helpful explanation about that. So there's this multitude of disabled people that are lying about in the porches of these pools. Verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. 38 years ago was 1979. Jimmy Carter was president. ESPN was first launched. Jupiter's rings were first discovered. I wasn't even born yet. This is a long time to lie in desolation, in a multitude of broken, disabled people with no one to help, with no life to speak of. This is a long time. It's hard even to fathom the depth of suffering that this man and people in his situation would have experienced. But Jesus knows. Jesus sees. I find it interesting that Jesus is always interested in a person, 
and not a crowd. We've seen that already in the Gospel of John. We've seen the, the time that Jesus takes to engage with Nicodemus, one-on-one conversation in the middle of the night. We've seen the, the efforts that Jesus went to in going into Samaria, this contested part, this, this kind of controversial area to go into in the, the care and time that he took with this woman at the, the well in, in Samaria. And in John 5, there's this paralyzed man at Bethesda, the pool, which means house of mercy, which I like. Despite there being a multitude of invalids, Jesus doesn't see this multitude and speak to all of them or wave his hand and heal the whole crowd. He finds one man. There was one man there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And Jesus, for whatever reason, is drawn to this man. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him and knew that he had already been there, a long time. Pause. He knows. He knows this guy's story. He's the son of God. Again, we see evidence of Jesus knowing people, knowing situations, knowing needs before anybody alerts him to the situation, before anybody tells him or fills him in on the details. He knows this man. He knows his situation. He knows his need. Please never forget that Jesus knows you. Jesus sees you. He knows your hurt, your fear, your sorrow. He knows your need. He feels your brokenness. Whatever you might be facing today, let that knowledge of his compassion for you minister to your heart. He knows this man. He sees him, and he knew that he had already been there a long time. Look at the second part of verse 6. He said to him, do you want to be healed? I love that question. Do do you want to be healed? At first, it seems like a total no-brainer. Like, hello, think McFly. Do you want to be healed? I've been laying here for 38 years. But I think he's inviting the man to look beyond his situation, to look beyond his brokenness and actually envision wholeness. What would healing look like? What would it mean for a man who's been lame 38 years to be healed? Sometimes I give my kids cookies or dessert. So let's say I'm going to give one of my, one of my boys a cookie. I could just randomly plop the cookie down in front of him and go, there, eat the cookie. And I'm sure he would enjoy the cookie. But usually, once I've made a decision, I want to give my son a cookie. Usually, I I ask him, would you like a cookie? Because I am delighted by the look on his face, by the enjoyment of the realization, I'm going to get a cookie. Right? That moment is fun for a parent. So, can I have a cookie? Can I have a cookie? Can I have a cookie? Sure, have a cookie is not nearly as enjoyable. Or randomly, hey, have a cookie. Not nearly as enjoyable as, would you like to have a cookie? And that moment of realization, oh, I'm going to have a cookie. But it's, it's that moment of realization, that moment of, of hope. A cookie is coming. Something good is coming. I, 
I, I think that maybe that's what Jesus is doing here, obviously in a much larger scale and a much more serious way. I think Jesus is giving the man the gift of hope. Instead of going, well, you've been lame a long time, boom, you're healed. He invites him into the experience of, of hope, the uplift of things could change. This, this won't be the rest of my life. Do you want to be healed? You don't see the man's face. Is that, is that possible? Could I really be healed? I've been here for 38 years. I think it's really kind of the Lord. Do you want to be healed? Interestingly, in verse 7, the man doesn't quite answer Jesus' question. He doesn't go, yeah, of course I do. Are you going to do it? He doesn't really go all the way there. He says, so he just kind of elaborates on his situation. Look at verse 7. Jesus said, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Again, the superstition that angels stir the water and there's this miraculous kind of magic that happens if you can get to the pool, be the first one to the pool and be healed. I think that's a superstition. I don't think that's true, but people believed it. And so he's, he's explaining to Jesus, I, yeah, I think essentially, of course I want to be healed, but I, every time I try, somebody beats me to the pool. Somebody, somebody gets there before me. It's a little bit ironic because he's, he's in the presence of the Son of God. He doesn't know it. He doesn't realize who Jesus is, but he's in the presence of God's Son who has the ability to make him well with a word. And he's essentially asking for help getting to the magic pool. I would like to be healed. Could you maybe help me get to the pool first? Like that, That's not how this works, man. You've got Jesus in front of you. You've got the Son of God in your presence. You don't ask him to help you get to the magic water. You go, yes, I want to be healed. That's all it takes. But aren't we like that sometimes? We have audience with the king of creation, access to the divine power that raised Jesus from the dead, and yet we concoct our own systems and solutions for our problems. If I, could, if I could just get to the magic pool. We have our own magic pools that we fashion for ourselves. And we only turn to Christ in prayer when all the other options have been exhausted, right? Nothing else is working. Guess I got to pray. God, can you help? And he's like, I've been here the whole time, right? Why didn't you come to me first? Don't worry about the pool. Come to me. And like this man, we look for physical solutions to spiritual problems. Because this guy's problem is much deeper than 38 years of paralysis, which we'll see in just a minute. May we learn to turn early and often to Jesus and ask him plainly for his grace for our need. Lord, will you help? Lord, give me grace. Lord, meet my need. Well, seeing the man's desperation is enough for Jesus. Seeing this man's situation, I'm sure the pain in his voice as he's describing his situation, I can't can't get to the pool. I've been trying for 38 years and somebody always beats me there. There's no help. There's no hope. There's no possibility of change. That's enough. Jesus doesn't demand a demonstration of faith. 
He doesn't demand a, a verbal confession, like, will you say that I'm the Christ or, or anything like that. He simply sees the man's situation, feels compassion for him, and meets his need. And so he says to him, verse 8, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Just words. Once again, the power of Jesus' words. He doesn't have to touch him. He doesn't have to like find a hip joint or something and put it back into place. He just says, you want to be healed? All right, get up. And that's all it takes. And this guy's body is put right again. The cells in his body change. And the bones that were brittle and bent straighten. And muscles that had atrophied long ago are strengthened. And he's able to rise and walk. Just because Jesus said, get up. Remember that John told us at the very beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. And then he tells us down in verse 14 of chapter one, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. The word of God utters words of power and the man is healed. Look at verse nine. And at once the man was healed. Then he took up his bed and walked. There's no, there's no explanation for this except Jesus is God. Jesus is the son of God with divine power and divine resources at his disposal to appropriate this power by his words and say, get up and walk. And this man who had spent nearly four decades lying by a pool, is walking away. Let's not forget the power of God. Let's not forget the ability of Jesus to redeem our brokenness, to meet our need, to change the situation that we think there's no way this could ever be different. It just takes a word. Let's look to him. Well, so that's the story of Jesus healing this guy. And it'd be nice if it ends there. Jesus healed a man and then he went on his way. But the plot thickens, as they say, in verse 10. Actually, the end of verse 9. Now, that day was the Sabbath. Cue the ominous music. Dun, dun, dun. Jesus picked the Sabbath to go and heal a guy and make him get up and carry his bed. So the Sabbath, let's talk just a minute about the Sabbath. The, Sabbath, the basis of the Sabbath is the fourth commandment. When God gave to Israel the 10 commandments, the fourth one was remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The Sabbath day hearkened back to God resting from his creating work on the seventh day. And I don't think it means rest. God rested like he was worn out. And I was like, oh, I just need a break. I don't think that's what it meant. I just think it meant he stopped. He rested from his work in the sense that he stopped working because he had created everything. I was like, I guess I'm done. But on that seventh day when he stopped his work, that became, by analogy, a, a day of 
rest and peace and worship and reflection for the people of God. And so he put it into the law uh, for his people Israel. You will take the seventh day of the week and use it to rest from your work, to remember me, to worship, and the like. So, and that's good. That was a good law. It was a merciful thing, really, if you think about it, to, to command his people, you have to take a break. Because we don't take a break, do we? We just go, I got to work eight days out of the week. And he says, no, you're going to take the seventh one and just not work at all. Just don't do it. Because you got to trust that I can do more in six days than you can do with seven. It really is a merciful commandment if you think about it. And it was a good thing. But here's the deal. The people of Israel and especially the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the ones who were trained in the law and that kind of thing, they had made such a perverted joke of the Sabbath by this time that it's little wonder that Jesus intentionally, repeatedly invites controversy regarding the Sabbath. They had, so there were some regulations about the Sabbath in the Old Testament that God had actually written into law, but by this time there have been hundreds of laws and regulations that have been added to those given by the Lord under the Old Covenant so that the keeping of Sabbath had become something of a barometer of spiritual health. Like if you keep the Sabbath, then you're a holy person. And if you violate the Sabbath, then you and God are not on good terms, right? And violating the Sabbath had come to mean any of this ridiculous list of very minor infractions and regulations. And I don't have time to enumerate the kinds of things that they had put into law, like the law of the land, not God's law. They thought it was. Um, but... But Sabbath breaking had become a very serious matter to the Jews because it was, it was such a, it kind of become the poster child, if you will, of religious duty. The Sabbath, the keeping of Sabbath was like, that was your, your card. Like, yep, I'm a Sabbath keeper. Boom, you're good to go. So if you break Sabbath, if you violate these Sabbath rules, you are on dangerous ground. So when the Jewish religious leaders find out what's happened, they are a little bit upset. They start actually by tracking down the guy who was healed. Look in verse 10. The Jews, that is these religious leaders, said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed because you weren't allowed to carry something from one domain to another. And he had picked up whatever blankets or whatever had been his bed for 38 years and was walking away with them. And they go, oh, he's carrying his bed on the Sabbath. Sabbath breaker. So they go to this guy. You can't carry your bed on the Sabbath. And the guy kind of blames Jesus. He goes, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. So kind of like, I'm, I'm just doing what I was told. Seemed to me that guy had the authority to tell me to do it, and so I did it. Sounding a little bit like Adam and Eve, right? What have you done? Oh, she, she gave me the fruit. Like, I, just, I just ate what she gave me. And he's like, goes to the woman, well, what'd you do? Well, I, I just gave what the snake, I just did what he said. That's what people do, right? We just kind of pass the buck. So this guy gets threatened by the authorities. You're breaking the Sabbath. No, 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 I'm just doing what, what that guy told me to do, the guy who healed me. And so then they ask him, 
Well, who is it? Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Verse 13, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn because of the crowd. He had withdrawn, which is interesting and probably miraculous in itself. There's this crowd of people. Obviously, a lot of people had seen, excuse me, a lot of people had seen this act of mercy and power, and somehow Jesus manages to kind of vanish almost. He had withdrawn, and so he couldn't even point to him. When they say, well, who was it that told you, get up from the place and walk with your bed? He's like, I don't know. He was here a minute ago, I promise. He's not there anymore. But he doesn't know who he is. I think that's the point to, 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 to notice here, is that the guy still, even after he's been healed, he doesn't know who Jesus is at all. Couldn't even name him. I, I don't know. That guy that told me to get up. But Jesus goes and finds him. And where does he find him? He finds him in the temple, which I think is probably a good sign. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple, which I think means the guy probably was going to worship God. He'd been healed and he recognized it was a gift of grace. And so he goes to the temple, maybe to present himself to the priest there. But I think it's an act of, uh, of faith on the part of the man going to the temple. And so Jesus finds him. You know, Jesus sought him out. Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Look at you. You're walking around. But then he goes a little bit farther than we like. And he says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Oh, we don't like the sound of that. I don't like how that sits. Do you? It sounds off-putting. It sounds like little bit too in your business. Like, whoa, can't we just leave it at, look at you, doing good, glad you're healed. Can't we just, can't we just stay there? Jesus has got to go for the jugular, so to speak. Oh, I'm glad to see that you're healed. Don't sin anymore or something worse might happen. Now you're stepping on toes here, Jesus. I think if you look a little closer, you'll see mercy in this warning. There is mercy in warning. Well, let's think through this a little bit. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. What, what, is that, what does it mean? At first you might think, was this guy's paralysis a punishment for sin? Like, was this dude lame for 38 years as a judgment for sin? And in one sense, in a broad sense, you could say, Absolutely. Because all disease, all suffering, and all death are a result of sin. Humankind sins, and as judgment of sin, death and disease and suffering enter the world. So in a broad way, of course, nobody is sick if there's never any sin. If people didn't sin, we live in paradise. So of course, in that way, yeah, he's... he's suffering as a result of sin. But, but Jesus seems to be saying something more specific, doesn't he? It sounds more like something about this guy's sin, which raises all kinds of questions. Does God really afflict people with diseases as a judgment for sin? Does God really make people lame because of things they did in their lives? I think at one level you have to say he can 
I think it's possible. I think he'd be within his prerogatives as God and judge to do that. If I sin against God, who am I to say, you can't make me sick? So in some way, well, sure, I think it's possible, but, but I think it misses the point. I don't think it's the question we're supposed to be asking. And in fact, Jesus kind of corrects that kind of thinking in a few other places. For example, in John 9, which will, where we'll be in a few weeks, um, John 9, he heals a man who was blind from birth. But when he and his disciples come across this man and they find out that he was blind from his birth, they start to have kind of a theological discussion. And the disciples say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So they assume that the blindness is a judgment for sin. Their question is, who sinned? Was the man born blind because his parents sinned? Like, was God judging his parents by giving them a blind child? Or did this man somehow sin, like, when he was still in his mother's womb, and so he was born blind, and, like, that doesn't make much sense. But that's the conversation they're having. And Jesus' answer is, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Which doesn't really answer the question. (laughs) He doesn't really say, whose sin was to blame. He just kind of says, that's, you're asking the wrong question. The point is not who's to blame for the suffering. The point is, what is the purpose of God in this suffering? And Jesus says, the purpose of God in this man's blindness is that I'm about to heal him. And I'm going to show you God's work. That's what he's getting at in John 9. And actually in Luke chapter 13, I'll read these few verses to you. Luke chapter 13, 1 through 5, Jesus addresses something very similar to this. There were some present at that very time who, were told, who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Don't worry about all those details. He answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? So that's what he's saying. He's asking that question. Do you think because they suffered, they're worse sinners so that their suffering was a direct result of their sin? He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Like the tower fell on them as a judgment for their sin? He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So he doesn't answer the question exactly. He goes around it. And he says, the point is, repent. The point is something worse may happen to you if you don't repent of your sin. So he doesn't exactly give us the answer that we're looking for. But I think that what he says to the paralytic here in John 5 is something very similar to what he just said, what we just read in Luke 13. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you means Leave your sin behind you, along with your disease, right? You left the disease behind, leave your sin too, and trust in me. Because if you don't, worse things will happen to you. Worse things like eternal damnation. Worse things like separation from God and judgment for eternity. And I think that's what Jesus means for two reasons. First of all, how much worse could it get for this guy? If he says, Sin no more or something worse might happen to you. You mean something worse than 38 years of paralysis and begging? That seems a little bit hard to me to figure out, well, what would be worse, 39 years of that? 
I don't know. If he's just talking about temporal, physical ailments as judgments for specific sin in his life, how could he be afflicted with something worse than 38 years of lying helpless by this pool? But the second reason I think that Jesus has a future and eternal judgment in view is just a few verses later, down in verse 28. It says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. It is the voice of the Son of Man, the voice of Jesus, and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, those verses we will actually look at next week. And so we'll spend some time unpacking what that means. But I only point it out here to say that in this very context, like he's going to be engaging with the Pharisees on this topic, in this story and he's going to bring in the the notion of of a final and eternal judgment and so i think when he says to him sin no more that something worse less something worse happens to you i think he means eternal judgment eternal separation so why would jesus give this strong warning about sin and judgment to this man that he's just healed first because the man's greatest need wasn't physical, but spiritual. The only need he saw was, man, I wish I could walk. But that wasn't his greatest need. His greatest need is repent, because you're a sinner. Repent and trust in Christ. Turn from your sin and follow Jesus. His greatest need wasn't physical, but spiritual. Because sin is a far greater disease than a leg-crushing, body-crippling paralysis. Because a few years of restored physical health is too small a redemption for the plan of God and the mission that Jesus came to fulfill. If all he had done was heal this guy of his paralysis and said, peace out, go on your way, and the best thing that the guy had was a few more years of life without being paralyzed, and then he went to hell for eternity, is that mercy? Is that good? That's, that's too small a redemption, too small a mercy. Jesus didn't come merely to heal bodies. He came to save souls. If this man lived the rest of his life with an able body and a dead soul, then that eternal judgment that Jesus has in mind would be his final end. And that's not good news. So Jesus' strong warning is really an expression of mercy and kindness. He's saying, There's something worse coming than being paralyzed for 38 years. There's an eternal judgment coming if you don't turn from your sin and trust in me. And he's inviting him to do that very thing. We got to finish up quickly. The Sabbath breaker, Jesus, um, gets in trouble here because the paralyzed man that's been healed now goes to the Jewish leaders and tells on Jesus, right? It was him. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And I think the language there indicates a pattern. Jesus kept doing stuff like this on Sabbaths. He was in a habit of healing people and doing acts of mercy on Sabbath day, inviting this controversy. He's intentionally inviting the controversy to point out the empty man-made rules that the Pharisees are living by and holding others to. So here's his defense in verse 17. Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I 
and working. Jesus claims a unique relationship with God as the Son of God, not by creation, as in we're all children of God, not by adoption, as in to those who received him, he gave them the right to become the children of God, but by nature, as in we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. This is who he is. He is uniquely connected to the Father as the Son of God. Jesus claims a unity of purpose and mission with God. When he says God has been working up till now, he means from eternity past all the way up till the present time, God the Father has been working and I am also working, which means wherever you see God at work, you see me. Wherever you see God the Father creating, healing, sustaining, loving, you've seen me at work. So what's he saying? I'm the son of God. That's what he's saying. And the Jews clearly recognize this, uh, this claim to oneness with God, because look at verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, which we've already talked about, is a very serious thing, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. These are serious charges in this day and time and culture, he is making himself equal with God. And that's what Jesus says. Listen, God works, I work. God's at work on the Sabbath, I'm at work on the Sabbath. Because who is Jesus? He's the son of God. Spiritually speaking, we're all like this paralytic in John 5. We're weak, we're helpless, we're desperate. We're crawling toward magic pools that we think will make us better. And Jesus shows himself to be the son of God, the one with power and authority to not only heal diseases, but to forgive sins and restore life and vitality to spiritually dead sinners like us. And I think he would ask each of us the same question that he asked the man in John 5. Do you want to be healed? He sees your brokenness. He sees your situation. He sees your desperation. And he asks, do you want to be healed? What are you going to say to him?